In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. By far the most frequently asked questions since I have landed in Norfolk are how are you settling in and is it feeling like home yet? And I have to be honest, I never really know how to answer this question. I usually say something like, I love the water. With the rain and the floods and the bodies of water, every time I turn around, it feels like Louisiana, <laughs> the place where I grew up. And at the same time, I know deep inside that Norfolk will never truly be home. And that's not to say that Louisiana is either. You see, expatriate life, a life lived outside the United States, is a strange existence for those of us who have lived it. Anthropologist Miriam Adney sums it up well when she says, you will never be completely at home again. Part of your heart will always be elsewhere. That's the price you pay for the richness of loving and knowing people in more than one place. And I suspect this might resonate with more than just a few of you. You see, last week after worship, someone was telling me they were still around. This is your disclaimer. If you talk to me after worship, you might wind up in a sermon. <laughs> so last week after worship, someone was telling me they were still around as they are waiting on their ship to be finished with refurbishments. And I made a joke about how that must be so difficult to have more time in Norfolk, insinuating that there are so many wonderful things to do and experience in this city. But they replied, actually, it kind of is. In many ways, I'm sitting around twiddling my thumbs. And it made me wonder if being on the ship was like expatriate life. Life at sea is necessarily radically different than that on land. And I wonder if a person's heart isn't always somewhat with their crew and the work they have been called to do aboard the ship. And I think this is the tension that Jesus is experiencing in our gospel today. Remember, he's just spent the last year or two recruiting, discipling, and traveling with his crew of folks. 
They're just starting to grow into their calling. And as much as we know the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, he has grown to love being with that crew, to love the world in a deeper way as a result of his incarnation. So when Jesus begins to tell his disciples, and that word begins is important as it is the first time they are hearing this. So when Jesus begins to tell his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected by the religious and political authorities, must be killed, and three days later, rise again. It's only natural that they respond with disbelief. We hear it verbalized in Peter's voice. We are told he rebukes Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are actual words recorded. Peter says, Never, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus responds, Get behind me, Satan. That's a rather strong clap back. And it might seem like overkill if we didn't know the whole picture. Jesus the Word made flesh has grown in his humanity throughout his short time on earth and has come to love his band of brothers as dense as Mark might have them be. And just like Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, here Satan is working through Peter to tempt Jesus again. Surely not, Lord. Surely this doesn't have to happen to you. And for a moment, Jesus considers what it might be like to stay in this new home, this one on earth, before remembering where he came from, the fullness of intimacy with the Father, the place to which he could return, the place where there is no more pain and no more suffering. And the switch flips, and he shuts down that temptation with, get behind me, Satan. And as my clergy colleague Sam Sheridan reminded me, it's important to note here that Peter is not Satan. Peter is not in himself morally evil, nor is Peter channeling Satan or allowing his body to be overtaken in some kind of way. Peter's words come from a place of genuine shock and concern for Jesus. They come out of love for Jesus and what he has meant 
to his disciples. And Satan is using that well-intended phrase and twisting it like a tiny dagger such that it hits Jesus exactly in the place that he has been agonizing over. To use modern day language, Jesus is triggered. But after Jesus shuts Peter down, it's like Jesus catches himself, reminds himself that these disciples just don't understand. And he immediately invites not only the disciples to come closer, but also the crowd. And he explains. And the language that he uses to explain might still sound shocking to us. But I wonder if this is simply preparation for the shock of the crucifixion. I can just hear Jesus thinking, if you all are going to get upset by some strong words, how are you going to make it through the inquisition by the authorities? How are you going to handle watching me be tortured and killed? It's better I prepare you now than leave you at your most vulnerable. For Jesus, this had to be extremely challenging. While there was undoubtedly some pain at the thought of leaving earth, there had to be some excitement at the thought of going home to God the Father, being once more in the fullness of God's radiance in a way that's just not the same as it is on earth. But I think Jesus was wise enough to understand that going back to God wouldn't be exactly like it was before. Jesus assumed humanity. And we know that even after his resurrection, he still bore the scars of his crucifixion. Sure, those scars were healed and his body renewed, but he still bore them nonetheless. Jesus was cognizant that it was only through the suffering that he must necessarily undergo and through his bodily resurrection that the new covenant with God would be inaugurated. That all would come to understand both the depth of our fallenness and the depth of God's redeeming love for us. I find the expatriate metaphor helpful here as well. Writing about expatriate life, Iranian author Azar Nafasi offers, you get a strange feeling when you leave a place, like you'll not only miss the people you love, but you miss the person you are at this time and place, because you will never be 
this way again. The covenant that Jesus initiates changes him, and it changes us. And perhaps this is why Reverend Kelvin Holdsworth, the Dean of St. Mary's Scottish Episcopal Cathedral in Glasgow, promises his visitors every year, if you attend these three services, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil, I promise your life will be changed. I asked him if anyone had ever come up to him wanting their time back or claiming they hadn't been changed. And he said in his almost decade at that cathedral, never. And of course, there's always the possibility that someone went home and it wasn't worth the time for them to let Kelvin know. But he suspects, as I do, that God is at work affecting change even in this unlikely scenario. So I close with an invitation that you walk with us, not only through Lent, but also through each service in Holy Week. Start planning now. I know it's a time commitment, but there's a reason that the Old Testament readings during Lent focus on all the covenants God has made with Israel over time. Last week, we heard the Noahic covenant. I will set my bow in the sky, and never again will I destroy the earth in such a way as I have now. And this week, we hear the Abrahamic covenant, that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And soon, we will hear the Davidic covenant. There's a reason we move slowly through time to the initiation of the new covenant, which Jesus begins to tell his disciples about today. We cannot overlook the history of the people of Jesus, nor Jesus' suffering and rejection in favor of skipping to the resurrection. To do so would be to blot out ourselves from the story, to blot out the home Jesus had to give up here on earth so that we might be able to be with him in his heavenly home, healed scars and all. Amen.